Lord, you are the great physician. You are the great physician and you work by the power of your word of mercy, your word of forgiveness, and your word of love. We pray through that, through these simple words, that your living word might be heard. It may bring us life, healing, and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. Here we are again. And here we are in week three of our series, Why Church? Why Church? Here we're looking at the shape of a worship service, how weekly worship provides us answers to that question, answers for ourselves and answers when others ask or when we feel called to share. The first week, the movement was come. We come to worship. We come to church. And last week, the movement was stand. We stand and we sing songs of praise. And this week, the movement is kneel. Kneel with a K. We come to church to kneel. I mean, we don't literally... <laughs> Neil, obviously, in this church or our branch of the Christian family tree. And there's reasons for that, and mostly because kneeling's a Catholic thing, and we're Protestants, and we don't want to seem too Catholic, right? But we metaphorically, we symbolically kneel every week when we join together in the prayer of confession. We spiritually kneel each week to confess our sins, even if we don't literally kneel. We spiritually kneel each week to confess our sins. Now, generally, I think that this might be the least popular reason for church there is. To kneel, to confess, has a pretty bad rap, even among church people. One summer, I spent a few days at a United Church of Canada retreat center as a youth leader. They had a chapel, a sort of mini worship service, at least twice a day. And I was told by a fellow youth leader that there were guidelines as to what words should be avoided in these worship services. One of those words, I was told, was the word sin. The word sin. I was told that sin carried so much baggage for some that hearing the word itself would trigger reactions so intensely negative that it would disrupt worship altogether. So no sin allowed, at least no talking about sin. Sin allowed, anyway. Now this might not be entirely surprising to those of us who are familiar with the culture of the United Church of Canada in general. There are many in the United Churches that have dropped confession altogether. But in some ways, it's quite understandable that they would do that. The word sin has become for many a source of anxiety. Something to be avoided at all costs, something guilt-inducing. Don't do this or else. Or maybe, for some of you, it was used as a weapon. Sin and sinner would be words to coerce, manipulate, and to shame 
undesirable behavior. Those of us who are gay likely have had a particularly painful experience like this and would rather just leave it all behind. Because to be a sinner, according to popular usage, would mean the opposite of being saved, outside the realm of God's grace, headed to hell in a handbasket or otherwise. So no wonder many of us have become averse to the word sin, to confessing it or being called a sinner, because it's like the worst thing ever, or at least one of them. It's not good, so we might as well leave it behind. Like I said, it's understandable It's understandable, but the truth is that sin, the concept, and confessing it is a crucial part of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. The difference, though, is the way that Jesus uses the word. Because for Jesus, to be a sinner isn't something to be avoided. It's something necessary. And embracing us, actually, embracing it actually changes us for the good, according to Jesus. Today's scripture passage has Jesus hanging out with a guy named Levi at his house. Now, Levi isn't the kind of guy who's, who upstanding, respectable people would want to be seen with. Levi is a tax collector, which means, you know, in one simple sum, summary word, he's a dirtbag. Not only is he a traitor because he works for the Romans, the occupying empire, he's also a cheat because tax collectors squeeze cash out of people for a living, especially the poor and the defenseless. So when Jesus ends up at a party at Levi's house, people talk, right? They start to whisper and point things out. Some Pharisees, it says, see Jesus rubbing shoulders and having a few drinks with this guy and they can't believe what he's doing. Why is this guy hanging out with sinners, they ask? And you know, they aren't just being judgmental, they're right about him. Remember? This guy's a sinner if there ever were one. To get a sense of how controversial this moment is, Imagine what happens when the chief police, chief of police is caught having dinner at the local drug kingpin's house. It'd be like a high-profile Democrat accepting an invitation to the Trump Tower. <laughs> Why is someone who is purportedly so good, so righteous and holy like Jesus, spending time with a guy like Levi? Because if you're friendly with a guy like this, you're just going to enable his bad behavior. You're endorsing it even. And how is he going to learn his lesson? And how is he going to change? People don't like it when Jesus hangs out with this guy. But Jesus doesn't see it that way at all. Look, he says. Look, people with a clean bill of health don't need a visit to the doctor, do they? 
Doctors are for people who are sick, he says. And you know what? I haven't come looking for the virtuous, the upstanding, or people with all to, it all together. I haven't come to call the righteous, he says, but I've come to call sinners. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, Jesus talks about sin a bit differently than we're used to. Here, Jesus talks about sin not just as the bad things we do, that bad people do, but he talks about it as a sort of illness, as a sickness, as an infection in the soul. And he portrays himself as a doctor, as a physician who comes to bring treatment to those who suffer from it. And the implication here, of course, is that it's an illness that infects everybody. Because Jesus comes not just to treat a few bad cases, according to the Bible, but he comes to treat all of humanity. To bring wholeness to all. Even the Pharisees who are good, justice-loving, pious dudes are called by Jesus as sinners due to their self-righteousness. I haven't come to call the righteous, he says, but sinners, and that means everybody. Jesus isn't just pointing his finger at one or two people. He means everybody. You see... We're all human. We're finite. We're mortal. We are born with a limited perspective. To put it simply, we're not God. I know every time I say that, I get a little disappointed. <laughs> are you sure? Each of us is inhabited by varying degrees of self-centeredness. And even our best intentions can be clouded by self interest, whether we're outright scoundrels like Levi or good folks caught up in self-righteousness like the Pharisees. The truth is that we all fall short of God's intention for us. Sin is universal. No one is righteous, not one, in the words of the Apostle Paul. We are all sinners. It's true. It's not a bad name to call bad people, but an essential part of human life, an essential description of the human condition, because sin is simply the human, the human condition in its fallenness and in its brokenness as a whole. So for Jesus, claiming the title of sinner isn't something to be avoided at all costs. Rather, it's something to be accepted and to be embraced in its truth. And the thing is, he says that when we actually do that, we're actually opening the door for our healing. In our being freed from sin and its power. Because coming to terms with a diagnosis is always the first step before treatment. That's what confession is all about. 
It's kind of like what the great blues musician Buddy Guy says. Funny thing about the blues, he says, funny thing about the blues, you play them because you got them. But when you play them, you lose them. That's sort of like the paradox of faith and confession, that in telling the truth about our brokenness, we actually start to transcend it. Funny thing about sin, you might say, funny thing about, funny thing about sin is you confess it because you got it, but when you confess it, you start to lose it. We confess because confession is part of the pathway to healing. We confess because it transforms us for the better. It transforms us for the better. Speaking the truth frees us. Jesus said the truth will set you free. And it's true. Now I'm reminded of a story told by Jim Nestigen, a giant six foot six, 300 pound Lutheran pastor from Minnesota. That detail comes into play at some point, just so you know, it's important. Jim tells this story of flying across country in a tiny airplane shoved in a seat beside another guy who was just about as big as him. The two of them were kind of squished together. And so thanks to their size, things were pretty intimate between the two of them before they even got started talking. And conversation itself was pretty much unavoidable because everything began with, sorry, excuse me. This guy started ask by asking Jim what he did for a living. And I mean, Jim is bolder than I am for sure. I'm a preacher of the gospel, he said. I'm like, oh boy, that's, oh, if I were to say that to somebody, oh, on the plane. I'd be in for, you know, a, a, you know complete silence or, or somebody that wouldn't stop talking, one or the other. The guy replied sort of knee-jerk, he said, but I'm not a believer. But I'm not a believer, he said. And Jim, he assured him that this was okay, and they just kept talking. It turned out the man had served in the army in Vietnam. And ever since that, this man had carried with him all the awful things he'd seen and the things that he'd actually done personally there. As they flew from one end of the country to the other, he spilled out all of his guilt, all of his shame, all of his hurt to this complete stranger. And when he'd finished, Jim asked the man this. He said, have you confessed all the sins that have been troubling you? But the man seemed surprised. Confess? He said, seeming confused. I haven't confessed anything. I've just told you what I've done in my life. You know, what's weighing heavily on. I haven't confessed anything. You've been confessing your sins to me this whole flight long, Jim replied. And I've been commanded by Christ Jesus that when I hear a confession like that, to hand over the goods and speak a particular word to you. So, 
Do you have any more sins burdening you? Jim asked. If so, just throw them all in there with the rest. You don't understand, the man said. I'm not a believer. I don't have any faith in me. Then Jim did something odd. He unbuckled his seatbelt, mid-landing, and he stood up and he stood over the man, which made the flight crew nervous, to say the least. They said, sir, the light is on. Buckle. Well, that's all right, brother, he said. You don't have faith. That's all right. Jesus says that it's what's inside of you that's wrong with the world. I'm going to speak faith into you, he said. And he raised his hands, like Ingrid and I do every Sunday, in the assurance of grace. And he said these words. In the name of Jesus Christ, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. And the man was even more bewildered than he was before. You can't do that, he shouted. You can't do that. To which Jim responded, I can. I can, and I just did. And I'll do it again. And he did it again. You are forgiven, he said. And the man began weeping uncontrollably until finally he began laughing uncontrollably all the way down the tarmac to the gate. And as the two men were grabbing their overhead luggage, Jim grabbed the man's hand and he gave him his card and said, you're not likely to believe your forgiveness tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. When you stop having faith in it, call me and I'll bear witness to you over and over again and I'll just keep doing it until you do. You really do trust and believe it. And you know what? The man did call him. He called him literally, called him on the phone, every day until the day he died. Just to hear those same words, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. So like Levi in the story approaching Jesus, this man was taking the first step on the path to his own healing. You see, in coming to terms with who he was, speaking the truth, confessing his sin, this man was, ex was accepting the truth of his diagnosis and our diagnosis as human beings. And in speaking the words of forgiveness, Pastor Jim was simply applying the cure the great physician gave him. A cure available to us all. A cure this man returned to day after day after day until the day he died, simply to be reminded over and over and over of its truth because he just couldn't believe it. 
So, we return to the question, why church? Why church? Because here we don't have to pretend we've got it all together. We don't have to delude ourselves into thinking we've got all the answers or that if we're not good and right about everything, somehow it'll all come crashing down. Nor are we imprisoned by our pain or our past deeds. No, it's here that we're able to confess. To kneel. To tell the truth about our lives and about our common spiritual condition without fear but with the glad expectation that there is indeed a cure. That our failures are met with mercy, that our hurts are met with healing, and that our sins are met not with punishment, but with forgiveness. A forgiveness that promises to not only bring us joyful release like an afflicted man forgiven by a stranger on an airplane, but one that also promises to make us the kind of people who extend, who proclaim, and practice that same forgiveness, like Pastor Jim. Why church? Because Christ didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners. He calls you, he calls me, he calls us all, as we are, and not as we ought to be. And that's good news. And it's good news worth hearing every single week and every single day, even. Amen.